This week on Crossing Crown Radio, there's been quite a bit of chatter about deconstruction in Christian circles. We're going to take a look at that particular issue. Also, our three headlines include Bill Gates was recently in Munich, Germany, talking about the Omicron variant, and, well, what he said was uh, interesting. Plus, the Winter Olympics in Beijing, China, is now over. Was it a flop? Pun intended. That's what the media is saying. And the CDC is withholding data from the public. Are you surprised? And finally, for our final segment, Theonomy or Autonomy, oh, Canada, what in the world is going on there? What can we learn from this, and what might it look like to petition government for redress of grievances? As always, I'm your host, Jason Garwood. Thank you for watching and listening to Crossing Crown Radio. John Cooper, lead singer and bassist of the rock band Skillet, has recently been the subject of much scrutiny. His crime? Sounding the alarm on deconstruction. Full disclosure, I've been a Skillet fan since they came on the scene in 1996. I've seen them in concert dozens of times, and next to Sanctus Real, they were and are one of my favorite bands. For me, there's quite a bit of youth group nostalgia when I listen to them. At any rate, what excites me about Cooper is some of the things he's been saying the past few months, and even more recently on his podcast, Cooper Stuff. He's clearly being influenced by theonomic and reconstructionist thinkers and writers, and I absolutely love seeing this. Cooper is using his platform to advance the ideas that I've been preaching and writing about for quite some time. What are those ideas? The total, inexhaustible lordship of Christ over every area of life, the inerrancy and infallibility of the Holy Scriptures, the centrality of the church in the Dominion Mandate, Skillet's most recently titled album is Dominion, if that helps explain things. How about the sovereignty of God in all things? The sufficiency of Scripture, which gives us the only true grounding in epistemology. The beauty of the cross and Christ's substitutionary atonement and the wonders of the resurrection and Jesus' victory over Satan, sin, and death. I could go on. What Cooper dares to suggest is that maybe, just maybe, there is something to this thing called Christianity, after all. The latest controversy Cooper has found himself in pertains to deconstruction. Like most things, the arguments could be easily sorted out by simply making sure our definitions are in order. The same goes for patriarchalism, CRT, and so on. Different people mean different things when they say these words or phrases, so we have to do our due diligence, with patience and understanding, no less, to make sure we understand each other. The irony is this presupposes the fixed reality of God and His created, intelligible, structured order. As someone who subscribes, for the most part, to the philosophy of the cosmonomic idea, also known as the Amsterdam philosophy, I presuppose that one, all philosophy is inescapably religiously motivated, and two, immanence philosophy, think Kant, isn't neutral, but instead antithetical to the Christian program. I'll explain more of this in a moment. So what do we mean by deconstruction? First, there are those who equate deconstruction with apostasy, which may very well be the case in many circumstances. In this situation, 
a person who may have grown up in the church begins to deconstruct or tear down certain assumptions or suppositions that he or she might have had. This is problematic when the things being torn down are the things I mentioned a moment ago. The total lordship of Christ, the inerrancy and infallibility of the scriptures, the atonement of Christ, and so on. If by deconstruction we mean gut the foundations of Christianity, then yes, we have apostasy. If by deconstruction we mean there is no absolute truth, the text is ultimately unknowable, and we should feel free to treat the Bible as we would a Star Wars novel, then yes, we have apostasy. An example of this is in order. On July 26, 2019, Josh Harris, the former pastor at Sovereign Grace, posted on Instagram and sent shockwaves through evangelicalism. In his post, he reflects on his recent divorce, stating that he's received grace from Christians, atheists, and LGBTQ people. He also mentioned that he received strong words of rebuke from religious people, his words. But Harris wasn't done, and I quote, the information that was left out of our announcement is that I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me that there is a different way to practice faith, he says, and I want to remain open to this, but... I'm not there now, end quote. What he doesn't admit, of course, is that he is still practicing a faith, an autonomous faith. As a side note, it is quite telling that Harris would go on in that post to repent for his views on sexuality, etc. He says he's not a Christian, but he has a lot of repentance to do. His new religion requires this of him. Apparently, Harris sees deconstruction as being synonymous with apostasy, but I don't think that's always the case. Is it the case in many instances? You bet. While it is true in his, of course, it's not always true in other situations. For example, I grew up a dispensationalist. This theological construct was something that I was ingrained in me as a child, and I certainly reject this theology today, but I don't hate anyone for teaching it to me. In my view, they didn't know any better. Perhaps they knew of postmillennialism, and perhaps they hated it with a passion, but when I began exploring the Bible, church history, and exegeting key passages, I realized that the dispensational construct needed to be torn down. Call it deconstruction if you must, but I simply call it theological sanctification and reformation. Are there things we need to sharpen and shore up? Absolutely. Is the Holy Spirit leading us into the truth? You bet. Eventually, everyone will be Presbyterian, didn't you know? Do we really need the term deconstruction to describe some of the things that are unhelpful but not necessarily unorthodox? Possibly, but I'm not that jealous for the term. Furthermore, I'm fine with the label Christian Reconstructionist, not because we need all sorts of adjectives attached to the noun Christian, like born-again Christian, which is superfluous and unnecessary. Are there not born-again Christians? but because there is a version of Christianity that is practiced today which goes by the name of Christianity but is non-confessional, pietistic, and humanistic to the core. I agree with Harris that there are unhelpful things going on in the name of Christianity, his case being at the forefront, but where we differ is in both the foundations, 
the bedrock that holds it together, and the walls, what we build on that bedrock. Harris saw the boat leaking and jumped out of the boat. I see the boat leaking, and I'm trying to find that patch sealant I saw on a commercial that one time. Regarding Christian Reconstruction, the name itself represents certain tenets of confessional biblical Christianity. Most adherents list five aspects. One, Calvinism, the sovereignty of God. Two, covenant theology. Three, theonomy, that is, the law of God being applicable today. Four, presuppositionalism, think apologetics and philosophy, etc. And five, postmillennialism, or the victory of Christ. Of course, there's debate within each of those five things, but generally speaking, I agree with them. If that defines a Reconstructionist, then I'm a Reconstructionist. But if I'm a Reconstructionist, then it's safe to assume, perhaps, and admit that I'm also, by logical deduction, a Deconstructionist as well. That is, there are certain presuppositions about Christianity that must be challenged. There are certain aspects to eschatology that, in my view, must be torn down. There are lots of things that must be torn down, which, and how I'm describing it, is what the reformers were attempting to do, reform. Regarding culture, there's a whole host of things I'd like to see, figuratively, torn down. Who knew that the vaccine issue would be our Berlin Wall? Tear it down, I say. I'm exaggerating, but alas, I do wish for sweeping change in the realm of civil government, some of which I will explain in the last segment. Additionally, the simple flow of history, which is moving from wrath to grace, from sin to redemption, tells us that there's a whole lot of deconstruction that's going to happen. Just look at the book of Judges. Israel gave themselves to the Baals and the Asheroths, literal idols in the land of Canaan, which weren't supposed to be there had they obeyed Yahweh the first time. And as a result, Israel found themselves under the judgment of God. Is this deconstructing? Is God's deliverance of his people from the clutches of their own self-imposed slavery an act of deconstruction? I don't think we have to force the term in there. What we mean is repentance and restoration, but this is not what many people mean. Furthermore, when God showed up with Elijah to outperform the priests of Baal, was this a deconstruction? A tearing asunder of idolatrous, idolatrous constructs? Did Josiah do that? when he literally tore down the high places, perhaps. But there's more to this issue than meets the eye. Jacques Derrida is considered the father of modern deconstructionism, which is sometimes known generally as postmodern philosophy. Derrida's ideas have contributed to the already problematic philosophies of Western philosophy by obscuring truth and reality, which only really makes sense in the Christian worldview. In Derrida's argument, the text is simply unknowable. We can't be dogmatic about it because language is, well, moldable. Permit me a moment to explain. And warning, we're going to do some heavy lifting. In Grecian culture, the work of Plato, and then later Aristotle, gave incredible, albeit wrong, advancement to our experience of the created order. Like it or not, Greek metaphysics was groundbreaking stuff for Western culture. For Plato, who was an idealist, his two-story house consisted of the lower story, called the receptacle, and the upper story, called the ideal. In this intangible upstairs, there were true forms and essences, the ideals. In the tangible, material, and real world of the lower story, there were copies and the appearance of certain things. 
the lower story would be considered imperfect reflections of the perfection upstairs. Now, Derrida rejected such idealism because in his view, the lingual aspect of creation, this by the way is the language of reformational philosophy, is in flux, ever-changing, and entirely subjective. Language and text is not static, and thus meaning is not inherent. It has to be interpreted. I consider Derrida to be an eminence philosopher, as he, like all philosophers, are influenced by Immanuel Kant to some degree or another. Yet Derrida was much more in line with Kierkegaard in Nietzsche, and obviously influenced by the existentialist Martin Heidegger. In this school of thought, there are dialectical tensions, poles of opposites, that can either be synthesized together, that's Hegel, or not, Derrida. Think of modernism as an example. In modernism, there's a dialectical ground motive of nature versus freedom. That is, scientific discovery seems to indicate that there is some level of scientific law that keeps things fixed in nature. However, we want to be free to explore our sexual or otherwise lusts, and so there's a tension in place. Deconstructionists like Derrida simply suggest that it's an irresolvable binary. Sound like Gnosticism? You're probably right. What we're dealing with here is not people asking questions in their churches, trying to figure out their lives. We're dealing with unbiblical, very dangerous ground motives, the same stuff the Greeks messed around with. Derrida's deconstructionism altered what is known as essentialism. In Plato's world, which was criticized by Derrida and other existentialists, including Aristotle, the, es the essence of some substance or form is a reflection of that ideal, that upstairs perfection. For example, language is simply a reflection of something going on upstairs, the logos of Greek metaphysics. For Derrida, he suggested that maybe there is something else here, particularly regarding language. In his mind, this produces a hierarchy of what is known as philosophical oppositions. Translation, we have to tear apart the dictionary and rethink communication. Further translation, the nature of reality isn't fixed. Deconstruction, as it pertains to philosophy, doesn't just deal with metaphysics. It deals with the foundation of everyday life. It deals with the presuppositions of reality. In Kant's eminence philosophy, the knowledge we possess and our asserting of that knowledge stops at our own self-consciousness. We might assume certain things out there, but it remains unprovable. The problem with eminence philosophy is that pure rationalistic thinking, which is completely separated from everything, does not and cannot exist. Philosophy, which stands on its own merits, cannot stand on its own merits. Your selfhood cannot be reduced to mere intellectualism. It is not cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am. Your amness and being is not based upon rational ability or inability. In fact, your selfhood transcends your own philosophy and cognition. Proverbs 4.23 reads, Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. How does this work with in the Christian worldview. Well, selfhood stems from being made in the image of God. Selfhood is rooted in the heart, not the mind. You cannot comprehend your selfhood by using your mind and depending on your own thinking. This is because selfhood has a religious connotation. 
There is more to the created order than one's ability to do logic. When a man like Derrida assumes the self-sufficiency of his own thinking, he cannot prove it rationally. When he tries, he proves himself insufficient because he relies on his own thinking to establish his thinking. In short, he has to trust in his dogmatism, which requires faith from his heart. Thus, Christianity is proven right once again. Deconstruction, then, like the Frankfurt School, believes that things in the world are not defined by their essence, but rather their social context and constructs. They can be moldable. They must be understood within a certain context, like standpoint theory. Sexuality, the family, authority, and so on are all means to the end of man's self-proclaimed sovereign ends. Words, in Derrida's mind, depend not on some prefixed reality imputed from transcendence, but rather come to us in institutional contexts and are thus moldable by the cultural hegemonies. Derrida's failing wasn't just the subjectivism he portrayed, it was also the absolutizing of the lingual aspect of reality. He believed that language was the primary mode of reality and thus it must be deconstructed. Deconstructed, But to what ends? We, we are left with guesswork. It is my view that the modern dialectic or ground motive of nature versus freedom has given way to a new postmodern philosophy, a new epistemologically unconscious dialectic, that is, relativism versus freedom. Which is to say, on the one hand, people want to reject the basic structure of knowledge because knowledge is perceived to be something controlled by the elites. Thus, truth is relativized, not for their own sake, but for the sake of whatever they want it to be. In that sense, truth is relativized in the name of freedom. But doesn't freedom presuppose something fixed of which one must be liberated from? You, Mr. Postmodernist, want desperately to unshackle yourself from the perceived chains of modernity's struggle with law in the scientific realm, so you think that the only way forward is to reject the presupposition of fixed reality in things like language, sexuality, and other normative social structures. But aren't you just insisting on another fixed premise of flux and moral relativism? The postmodern zeitgeist attempts to escape one ditch by swerving into another, and in the end, this philosophy, advocated by Derrida, leaves everyone stuck in the mud. It is only Christ and Christianity's world and life view that sorts out the mess. Yesterday's emergent church progressives have become, in large part, today's deconstructionist spiritualists. In conclusion, we have various aspects at play when it comes to definitions. Are there things we have grown accustomed to believe in the church that deserve further scrutiny? Absolutely. Are there things we have grown accustomed to believe in the church that deserve to be thrown away? It depends on what we're talking about. The Bible? Biblical sexual ethics? No way. Perhaps what we really mean is reformation, not deconstruction. This past December, Matt Chandler found himself having to defend some of his statements from a sermon. He too wanted to clarify, as do I, that helping people who are struggling with doubt or struggling with theological or philosophical issues is absolutely the role of the body of Christ. Pastorally, I want to help people wrestle through these things, but I do not want deconstructionists like Richard Rohr getting a hold of them, and neither does Chandler. One doesn't truly experience the salvation that Christ offers and then walk away from that. 
1 John 2.19 says it this way, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they were of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be manifested that they all are not of us. That is, antichrists were in the church but left the church, and if they were true to Christian orthodoxy, they would have stayed. You don't deconstruct on the postmodern sense, of course, and typically stay in the faith, as Harris admits. Can you deconstruct, that is, set aside your Bible and the authority of God's law revelation and then reconstruct some sort of faith apart from that standard? No. You don't leave the foundation of all epistemology and philosophy, the principium and arche that is Jesus Christ and his law word, and discover some spirituality that exists out there. That is paganism, not orthodox Christianity. Do we live in a time where absolute truth is rejected and thus adherence to such atrocious philosophies continue to scorn the church for their perceived tolerance of the intolerable? Yes. What about the two gender theorists, for example? The followers of Derrida might say, well, that is a language construct foisted upon you by outdated religion and therefore you must discard this putrid belief and instead subscribe to what we are saying. The trap has been set. Is it absolutely true that there are no absolutes? If language is as subjective as you are saying, wouldn't that be a moot point? Why should we listen to your language if language is entirely relative? The folly of postmodernism is certainly part of why someone like Josh Harris has apostatized from Christianity. Am I sad for him? Yes. Am I sad for people who have serious doubts but need help in order to navigate certain crises in their lives? You bet, and I'm, I'm happy to help. There are seekers who need guidance, Christians who need direction, and vulnerable ones who need comfort. But I'm also with John Cooper, not going to pretend that there aren't certain impulses that are driving this train off the cliff. I don't want someone to deconstruct themselves out of the kingdom. I'm not going to pretend that there isn't a longing for people to discover their true selves in order to live more authentically as they go about pretending to love Jesus while completely throwing away what the Bible demands of them. This idea that there's a real you to be discovered by simply following whatever your heart and mind tells you is destructive and damaging. And we should be concerned. It should concern us that people are following Derrida's postmodernism by saying that texts are unknowable and thus we should interpret the Bible for ourselves, for our own needs and our own aspirations. After all, the powerful men like Luther and Calvin foisted upon an unwilling world their opinions. How privileged of those Europeans. We're supposed to build our house on the rock of God's word, not try to make Christianity more palatable to the unbelieving world by keeping away from certain hot-button topics and certainly not allowing the unbelieving world to dictate what it is we can and cannot talk about. Scripture is replete with warnings to God's people, and we would do well to heed them. Building requires that we know the truth, know how to build on that truth, and be ready to withstand the rains. People who stand for truth are ultimately said to be unloving because those who do not want the truth are worshiping the God of relativism. Let's get to our three headlines. First up, Bill Gates made an appearance at the annual Munich Security Conference and things, well, things were said. I have two videos for you and we'll start with this one first. 
What about masks? I think there are a lot of people in America who are confused about whether they should be wearing a mask. And in the United Kingdom, for example, they've scrapped that altogether. Well, that's interesting. You know, what is the downside of wearing a mask? I mean, it's got to be tough. You know, you have to wear pants. Uh, I mean, this is tough stuff. These societies are so cruel. Why do they make you wear pants? I'm trying to figure it out. Uh, <laughs> We're very glad you have yours on. Um, so, uh, that will be on the web. Uh -oh. <laughs> that will be on the web. <laughs> While the CDC lowers their speech standards because we have kids being forced to be muzzled by lunatics, Gates is out here not wearing a mask and telling people that covering your legs is just as important as covering your mouth. Or maybe it's the other way around. We all know that masks don't work, which is why they keep pushing this silly narrative. After all, they have to do something, right? If, if the status are going to assume control over health, they have to do something. But why the dishonesty here? Why the fallacious comparison? The only time I've ever worn a mask was precisely for the same reason I was wearing pants. It was cold. I grew up in Michigan, and when playing outside as a kid during the winter, I wanted everything but my eyes covered with something. But pants and masks? I guess the damage done to our children by making them cover their very holes that keep detoxing the body is swept under the rug yet again. But I do appreciate the lady who thanked Bill for wearing pants, even though he was maskless. The second video is really disturbing, but for a different reason. Let's watch that one. To, to kick off, actually, and get a bit of a scene center from Mr. Gates, because this is, I know, a topic that you've spoken on again and again. You were ahead of the curve prior to the beginning of this pandemic. Where would you assess where we are today in beating COVID-19? Well, the, uh, you know, sadly, the virus itself, particularly the the variant called Omicron uh, is a type of vaccine. That is, it creates both B cell and T cell immunity. And it's done a better job of getting out to the world population uh, than we have with vaccines. If you do uh, sero surveys in African countries, you get well over 80% of people uh, have been exposed either to the vaccine or uh, to various variants. And so, you know, what that does is it means the chance of severe disease, which is mainly associated with being elderly and uh, having obesity or diabetes, those risks are now dramatically reduced because of that uh, infection exposure. And, you know, it's sad. We didn't do a great job on therapeutics. You know, only here, two years in, do we have a, a good therapeutic. Uh, Vaccines, it took us two years to be in oversupply. Today, there are more vaccines than there is demand for vaccines. Uh, and, you know, that wasn't true. And next time we should try and make it, instead of two years, we should make it more like six months, uh, which certainly, uh, you know, some of the standardized platform approaches, including mRNA, would allow us to do that. So, you know, it, it took us a lot longer this time than, than it should have. Did you hear what he said? Sadly, he says, the Omicron variant did a better job than the vaccine. What we regular folks call natural immunity, Gates calls a type of vaccine. It's like he can't refrain from saying the word vaccine. I, I guess when your pockets are lined by this particular product, you tend to push that agenda. He's a salesman after all. 
Anyhow, in his words, the Omicron did better at providing the world B-cell and T-cell immunity than his experimental jab. When he said sadly, I think what he was trying to say was that it was sad that the virus did a better job than the vaccine manufacturers. Now, I know it doesn't sound like that, but I think that's what he was trying to say, and I want to try to put a solid construction on what he said. But the other disturbing thing pertained to his next comment. Next time. Next time, they need six months to develop a vaccine, not two years. Well, why next time, Bill? What evolutionary concoction do you have planned? In a different clip, which I don't have here, he lauded Australia because that's the model for the next pandemic. They did really well, apparently. Okay, Bill. Either way, some of us have been saying from the beginning that natural immunity is the way to go for the at-risk group with obesity, heart disease, and other problems. Uh, we should have been giving them therapies at home instead of sending them to the hospital at the last minute to die because at that point it was too late. But we were labeled conspiracy theorists and our videos were taken down on YouTube and monitored by the technocracy. Speaking of which, Cross and Crown Radio will not be putting videos on YouTube anymore because our first episode from last week was taken down in less than 24 hours. So we will be on Rumble making sure that you don't get disinformation from the Gates Foundation. Next up, the Winter Olympics just recently wrapped things up in communist China, and several outlets are reporting its abysmal failure. AP News, Hollywood Reporter, NBC, and Fox News are all jumping on this story. And this is from APNews.com. It says, Before he got out of town, the great Canadian snowboarder Mark Moore, McMorris called the Beijing Games a version of, quote, sports prison. He was joking, sort of, but his vision wasn't that far off. The cardened-off Olympic bubble that folds up when this closing ceremony ends Sunday has produced its usual collage of amazing athletes doing great things. This 17-day journey, however, has been witnessed through a sealed-off looking glass, a lens warped and sterilized by Beijing's organizing committee with underwriting from the Chinese government. The ultimate sponsor, the International Olympic Committee, which has been under fire for producing games that, to many, have felt soulless, while also being tainted by scandal and political posturing. I think that sometimes it doesn't seem like their heart is in the right place, the outspoken freestyle skier Gus Kenworthy said. It feels like it's a greed game. I mean, the Olympics are so incredible, but it's a TV show, end quote. As the IOC pulls up stakes from Beijing, it has 29 months to hit the reset button and hope for a different COVID-free and much better vibe when the summer games go to Paris. The lingering question is whether, even in a more welcoming democratic locale, the Olympic overseers can repair their reputations to the point that people, most notably the dwindling TV audience and the increasingly alienated throng of athletes, start to enjoy this enterprise again." End quote. So, apparently, the genocidal communists in China can't put on a good Winter Olympic experience, both for its viewers and fans and for its athletes. No surprise there. Who could have possibly predicted that? But there was a significant drop in viewership for NBC. On average, 12.2 million watched the Olympics in primetime. This is from Fox News, by the way, which was a 42% drop from the 2018 Olympics in South Korea. Now, I remember growing up watching the Olympics and loving it. I 
Remember the drama that unfolded with Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding as Harding hired someone to strike Kerrigan on the knee with a police baton, hoping to prevent her from competing in the Olympics. Of course, at the time, what I didn't know was that it happened in Detroit, my home state. Kerrigan went on to finish with the silver medal at the 1994 Winter Olympics in Lillehammer, Norway, and all was well there. But I remember the figure skating drama, and I loved watching all the athletes compete at their sport. As I've grown older, however, <laughs> the Olympics have been less exciting for me. I guess I would rather read a book, but perhaps my issue is this. The Olympics are oftentimes viewed as being a great unifier of countries. If, if we could all just set aside our differences and compete together, everyone will be happy. Maybe it's the bread and circuses thing, but maybe not. But either way, if China's involved, it's no wonder it bombed. Their statist pagan government ruins everything. No surprise there. At any rate, China, as a side note, is being Christianized, and we need more time, so pray for your brothers and sisters there. As for the Olympics, the height of it for me was the dream team, but I really don't care much about basketball anymore as it is. All right, next up, the New York Times recently published an article with the headline, The CDC Isn't Publishing Large Portions of the COVID Data It Collects. The article reports that the CDC has collected data on hospitalizations for more than a year, breaking down the data in terms of age, race, and vaccination status, but most of their data hasn't been made public. The article goes on, to decry this withholding of information because it could help us win the battle against the virus. Kristen Nordland, who is a spokeswoman for the CDC, said that the agency has been slow to release different streams of data because basically at the end of the day, she says, it's not ready for prime time. As someone once said, torture the data long enough and you can get it to confess anything. I guess they're still waterboarding the numbers right now. The other reason, of course, is because we're all too stupid to understand it, and they don't want conspiracy theorists going berserk. The article didn't really say that, but that's my conclusion, and I would argue that it's rather self-evident. One thing did strike me as odd. Quote, but the CDC has been routinely collecting information since the COVID vaccines were first rolled out last year, according to a federal official familiar with the effort. The agency has been, listen to this, reluctant to make those figures public, the official said, because they might be misinterpreted as the vaccines being ineffective, end quote. See, I told you guys we're too stupid. We might read the data and conclude that the vaccine has done virtually nothing but harm people, thousands and thousands of people. And since that's the narrative we will jump to because we have common sense, it's best that the powers that be hang on to that data. It's for our good, I'm sure. Amazing, isn't it? My guess is if we saw the plain and simple data, we'd conclude correctly that the administration of the vaccine did several things. One, it caused variations of exosomes in people, what we call viral mutation. Two, case count went way up afterwards because people fell ill because of the jab, got tested, and what do you know, the cycle picked up some sort of cellular debris, and we called it COVID again. And three, we would learn that their vaccine did absolutely nothing, just like the masks, lockdowns, and social distancing, to stop the spread of what is called COVID-19. So, you peons and your stupid conclusions, just trust the CDC. They know best. 
well, this isn't the first time the New York Times got something right. They called out the testing problem last year with the cycle threshold being far too high, but alas, a broken clock is right twice a day. As always, you have a right to put poisonous experiments in your body, but I would urge you to not do it. And don't think that this is the last time we'll have to deal with it all. It's shameful. Now let's get to our final segment, theonomy or autonomy. Oh, Canada, what is going on? Take a look at these two videos before we start. The streets were full, people were singing and marching, and they were making their voices heard, even though it's hard to do and Trudeau is deaf of hearing basic logic. Remember, he's the guy, to assume his gender, who just can't stand the word mankind. It appears now as though the streets of Ottawa are cleared up, and the Daily Wire reports that 200 demonstrators were arrested outside of Parliament. The three-week standoff is coming to an end. One noteworthy item, Canada's Freedom Convoy leader and organizer, Tamara Lich, or Lick, I'm not sure, L-I-C-H, who, she's from Alberta, was denied bail by an Ottawa judge last week and now faces up to 10 years in prison. I guess if you drum the charges up enough, yeah, you can make anything stick. In fact, I'm sure she misused a pronoun recently. Might as well throw her in jail for that. Goodness. Mike Duhem, who is the Royal Canadian Mounted Police Deputy Commissioner of Federal Policing, long title there, said, quote, We are already seeing positive results, including the freezing of 206 financial products, bank accounts, corporate accounts, the disclosure of 56 entities, vehicles, individuals, companies, the addresses of 253 bitcoins shared with virtual currency exchangers, and the proactive freezing of an account of payment processor for a value of $3.8 million by financial institution, end quote. You see, this is why it's bad for civil government officials to be in charge of the monetary supply. It's despicable. Plunder the Israelites, the Egyptians said. But what are we to make of this whole ordeal? COVID restrictions were eased, but even Trudeau said that wasn't because of the protesters. Several people were injured by police, and to what end? Last week I said that I supported the trucker convoy, and I tried to make it clear that my support was simply in the spirit of the First Amendment of the United States. Yes, 
I know we're talking about Canada. The right to petition government for redress of grievances is important, and it dates back even so far as the Magna Carta in 1215. We should be able to address our leaders without being punished. I believe that was the intent behind the Warrington Declaration we talked about last week. But perhaps there's something else to consider, something that's right under our noses. In a recent sermon, I made the point that idols have no real power. However, the power they do have is only given to them by the worshiper. Which is to say, idols are lifeless and impotent. But when we pretend that they are full of life and full of power, we give ourselves to them, and there is power in that. The same goes for this trucker convoy. I appreciate their fervor, their passion, their desire for freedom. We as Americans share in that sentiment. But what if this principle of idolatry is carried over into the realm of civil government? For starters, the nature of the state is really problematic in and of itself. When I formulate my position on the theocratic judiciary and when I explain what I see in the Bible as a local, decentralized, common law court that is not legislative or executive, but judicial in power, I'm suggesting that our modern-day governments are more a product of enlightenment thinking than the Bible. Governments today are corporations with shareholders to please. They work in terms of contract law, and when we contract into their legal system, we are bound by their authority. Think about it. They don't have any real authority as it is. The only authority one could possibly get comes from the throne of Christ. And if it isn't a God-approved, biblically-based system, then it isn't authority. I believe the modern state is pagan, and I believe God hates it. But why? Well, because it's unbiblical, and it harms people. It forces free men and women to contract into their power. Think of it in terms of mandates. My friend Chris and I have been hashing this over quite a bit lately, but according to the Black, Black's Law Dictionary, the word mandate means, quote, a commission or contract by which one person, the mandator, requests someone, the mandatory, to perform some service gratuitously, the commission being effective when the mandatory agrees, end quote. Interesting stuff, right? These medical mandates can and should be ignored. Why? Because it is an illegitimate system according to God's law, which means you are free in Christ to disobey, and because there is no contract that makes it obligatory. This is partly why things uh, went down in Texas with masks the way that they did. My exhortation to Canada and to the U.S., because apparently the trucker convoy is on its way to D.C. next, is to, one, know what the Bible says. Two, know your inalienable rights, or inalienable rights, they can't put a lien on your rights. And three, work to establish a common law locally, which is something we're doing here with our church. Don't play their games. Don't assume their authority. Don't act like the emperor has some clothes on. One final clip to show, and, and this is Christian Therese, T-E-R-H-E-S, who is a member of the European Parliament representing Romania and the Christian Democratic National Peasants Party. <laughs> I had no idea. His Twitter bio says that he is a, quote, human rights advocate, end quote. Let's listen to this clip. And what the Prime Minister of Canada, the way he's behaving right now, he's exactly like a tyrant, like a dictator. He's like Ceausescu in Romania. If even you doubt, if you raise doubts about the vaccines, 
You're outcasted. What's the difference between what he does and what happened under the Inquisition? See, on one side they say, well, we should not believe in God. But on the other side they say, believe in science. We don't have to. Science is not about belief. Science is about measurements, conclusions, hypotheses, and arguments. We got to a point right now where even if you say something, if you raise any doubts, you're already considered, you know, as whatever, you know. They label you in very different ways. This is not okay. And I have to tell you, you know, that I, when I saw the protests in Canada, you know, the way the truckers over there <coughs> reacted, you know, I got in touch with some of them, others contacted me, I congratulated them, and I want to use this opportunity to thank them. And I hope this movement for freedom and for rights is spreading all around the world. Because at the end of the day, we have to make sure that all these elected officials, they understand that they were elected in those offices to work for the people, not to behave like masters of slaves. Thank you. First, bravo, sir. I appreciate your passion, and I agree. Freedom matters. Liberty matters. Ideally, yes, our politicians work for us, but in our case, here in the U.S., we're dealing with a whole different 14th Amendment construction of citizenry. We don't really know freedom because we've farmed so much of it out to the state. But I appreciate your passion, and I share your criticism of Mr., or is it Mrs., Justin Trudeau. And I want to end with this. If we want freedom and liberty, then we're going to have to completely rethink what we have going on right now. There is no way to have freedom with the current political structures we have in place. It just isn't going to happen. We cannot beg for crumbs from their tables. The table is ours. We have to get out of their system, being living men and women walking on the land and soil and restore the basic common law we so desire. We're not going to vote our way into this freedom we so long for. Whether it's private membership associations, localism, etc., all of those are things we're simply going to have to explore and put into practice. Voting your way into freedom isn't going to work. It's, it never works. Protesting unlawful mandates while potentially fine and dandy for stirring up godly trouble, isn't the long-term solution. The solution is Christ and his victory and the simplicity and efficacy of God's law of liberty. We must repent first and foremost, and we must look to him. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining me on today's episode. We're happy to have you here. If you'd like to contribute to the ongoing costs of production, we'd love to have you partner with us in this work. Perhaps you can do $25, $50, or even $100 a month, or even a one-time donation. Either way, visit us at crosscrownchurch.com give to join the fight. We also wanted to let you know that we'll have some audio-only content coming around once in a while, featuring some of my friends and co-laborers here in Virginia. So be on the lookout for that. Thanks again. The Lord bless you and keep you.